Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is A House and Its Head by Ivy Compton Burnett, originally published in 1935. A House and Its Head is Ivy Compton Burnett's subversive look at the politics of family life and perhaps the most unsparing of her novels. No sooner has Duncan Edgeworth's wife died than he takes a new, much younger bride whose willful ways provoke a series of transgressions that begins with adultery and ends, much to everyone's relief, in a murder. <laughs> That's actually a really great... I think Ivy would be pretty proud of that um, back cover description. Yeah, and it's funny because I don't actually have the NYRB edition. I have an old Penguin paperback from like the 50s. And, you know, they didn't have blurbs like that back then. Yeah. But this one just said, an analysis of the life of a family and of the character and influence of its head, related with exactitude and sophistication. Again, I think <laughs> I would also be proud of that one too. Just depends on what audience they're selling for. Are they selling for like a 1950s audience or a 2020 audience? Yeah, but but it's kind of just repeating the title. Like, it's it's true. <laughs> and we are joined by musician and author John Darniel. His latest novel, Devil House, was published last year, and the new Mountain Goats album, Jenny from Thebes, is coming out next month. I believe October 27th. Very excited for that. And he's on tour. John's performing a solo show tonight in Brooklyn um, as of the release date, September 19th. But he'll be playing around the country from October through December. So keep your eye out for if he's coming to your city. Welcome to the show, John. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm pouring tea for those of you who can't see this. It's, what it's, variety of tea is that? Oh, do not get me started on my tea. Uh, it's, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, what's called a chahai, and you brew Chinese tea in it. This is grandpa style. There's a thing called a gaiwan you can use for really proper gongfu brewing, but grandpa style, the best style in my opinion, you just pour the water in and pour it out through this strainer that's here. Uh, and there's about eight grams of shu pu'er in here. A pu'er is an aged tea, an aged oolong. And some of them can be 30, 40, 50 years old. This one is about 10 years old. Shu pu'er is one that the aging was kickstarted by misting it or something. The more, the sort of the one that the, the real connoisseurs are into is called shung pu'er, which is aged in a natural way without, without making it sort of age quicker. But the taste, and you can brew it, like this will be my sixth steeping of this this morning. Uh, oh, wow. You can hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. People with really good aged ones will hit them 10, 15 times in a day. And the taste, it's like wine. The taste is like incredibly complex and super tasty. I tend to favor the sweeter ones because I'm a child, but, uh, but <laughs> so that's the whole nature of this aged tea thing that I, do. I, I gave up coffee for the most part about five years ago and I got into this aged tea. So. Oh, nice. Wow. At first I thought you were celebrating the, the English tea time of Ivy Compton oh. Burnett, but no, I don't think she ever had this type of tea. No, if you look up aged pu'er, P-U-E-R, right, is how you spell it. Mm -hmm. Whole, and I, I won't advertise. Yes, I will, actually. <laughs> One of the guys I buy from is a, a guy called Liquid Proust, who does amazing aged tea, and I'm, I'm super fond of that. But there's a million. There's Liquid Proust, there's White Two Tea, there's West China Tea. Yunnan Sourcing is kind of the big tea vendor online but there, there's a it's a whole universe the one i'm drinking actually i i figured last time i was in new york i was like there has to be chinese tea shops selling this stuff it's a chinese thing you know mm -hmm. and so i found one in chinatown and we were staying in the financial district so i just walked i went for a walk and the place was like this very tiny closet i passed it like three times before i you know online <laughs> and, and 
other tea people are like, no, no, you'll miss it, but it's right there. It's this tiny little place selling super great aged cakes. You know, I'll show you one. I told you that when I get started, I just start talking, right? So <laughs> for interviewers, I think it's kind of a blessing, but for me, it's kind of a curse. But so these are called Bings, right? Your viewers can't see them. Sure. This is, I think, 270 grams of tea and you use five to eight per brewing. This one is eight years old or so, and I bought it that New York trip. Right? Oh, wow. This is, this is, I see, where It's been, uh, or no, this might be the, sh I bought one shung and one shoe. Uh, I tend to <laughs> shoe which like, it makes me kind of uncultured, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but I like it. It's sweet. And, and there's another one called Hecha that doesn't come in round things like that, but that has a naturally growing mold on it, you know, that makes it sweeter. Mm -hmm. Those are called golden flowers. And this is a, uh, and that was uh, Chairman Mao's favorite tea, apparently, uh, uh, and one of mine. And oh. buy big bricks of a thousand grams. Or in portions. The thing is, like, the vendors, they break them off the brick and sell you like 50 grams of it or whatever. Like, like you know, like drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if sweet tea is the best sort of tea to be drinking with an Ivy Compton Burnett book, but. Yes. Yeah. No, it should. It's not an English tea, but, it, but it's got a sweet edge to it and some, and some little cocoa flavor and a lot of complexity. So. Yeah, but. She is a bitter writer. And you know, you're, I think I got it because I was a subscriber and the, and I think, was it Master of Maidservant? I can't remember which one I was just saying. And it just landed in my inbox or landed in my, in my house. And the thing is, I have so many books that sending me a book is no guarantee that anything happens with it. Sure. But I was just curious enough, you know, <laughs> that after a, a months or maybe a year or two, I was like, oh, read that. And I was absolutely smitten. It's the craziest stuff. I know. We they, There's a tweet you posted about it where you said, I have a feeling that Ivy Compton Burnett's about to kill a character and I'm not happy about that. <laughs> and that sense of like bitter dread is just so palpable in her writing. Yeah, everybody, I'm looking for my giant, uh, it's going to be buried behind all this other stuff. I have a giant biography of her. Have you seen this thing? It's like, it's a thousand is pages. Is it the Hillary Sperling one? Yes. Yeah. And yes. I, I suspect I will never read it because it's so big and will, you know, completely push out all the other stuff I want to read. But I have violent principle. <laughs> it's just so big. But yeah, no, you, it's almost impossible to know where to get started. And But, but there's a delight in knowing that if you said there's all these complexities in her and then somebody starts reading the book, they would go, well, yeah, but this is just dialogue. Right. <laughs> You'd go, Yes, it is. <laughs> There's something else in there. So what was it that made you decide to read Manservant and Maidservant, even if, like you said, it's not a guarantee that you're going to read? What was like, all right, I'll pick this one up? God, I don't, I don't know what it was. I mean, that's fine. one thing I will say, well, no, I, there's, there's one thing I'll say that I kind of feel like it feels performative. But one thing I will do is I'll look at my reading list. Mm -hmm. And I started doing this in like 2004 or so. And I noticed like I was reading a book and I went, did you ever read any books by women? You know, I said to myself, and so I set aside a whole year to not read any men, right? And sure. then the following gotcha. year, I set aside a whole year to not read anything that was originally written in English. These two years were, this was like 2005 and six or four and five. These were transformative years for me. Sure. Uh, they changed the way I think about my reading forever. I mean, because the thing is like people who, I, I am assuming we all lean left here, but people often, you will, you know, the notion of having a quota for something there's a stigma attached to that. Oh, you're only doing it for quotas or something. But I think in your personal life, it's good to have quotas to go, am I being exposed to enough of this? Am I getting enough yeah. of a broad view of stuff? So I still do this. After that year, I'll look at my reading list. I think, you know, even though in writing, I think since the mid 20th century, 
you're much less likely to find yourself defaulting to all dudes like you would have a hundred years previously, you know, just for lack of published women. Exactly. Um, it still happens. And we still have, you know, great men still tend to dominate, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. So in all likelihood, what happened was I was saying, what have you read? Oh, look, look at you. There's three dudes in a row. What do you got here? It's by a woman and just grab the nearest thing. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, and the other thing would have been because my reading is so overwhelmingly stuff in translation that I'll occasionally go, it's time to read something by somebody who's, whose first language is English, right? Because it really is, I'm 70 to 80% works in translation. So, oh, wow, nice. Um, it's, I, I worry that it's going to get up to 100 because like, I'm, that's a whole world. Like right now I'm reading Karamazov. I've never read that before. And well, once I do that, I, I'm going to want to read Bogakov, you know, anyway. But yeah, so I probably went, well, here, this is in English and it's by a woman. Two birds, one stone. <laughs> yeah. But then I looked at the first few pages and I was completely smitten because of how bizarre it is. Yeah. You know? In a way that it seem, I'm sorry, I'm going on, but it doesn't seem self-consciously bizarre. No. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure she knows what she's doing, but she's not. One thing that's a big turnoff to me, to me is like people who seem to be reveling in their own weirdness in, in books. Mm -hmm. I don't know for that. Plenty of people do and that's fine. Whatever. But I like people who, who, who seem to want to be saying, let me just try and write a good book. And her idea of that is so naturally bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah. I'm glad to hear that it that it clicked for you without anyone providing you with an explanation. Well, I think after about 50 pages, I looked some stuff up and I said, I saw this, or no, the introduction was good. And the introduction oh, said, okay. told almost entirely in dialogue with a bare minimum of expository prose. I went, wow, that's... And we <laughs> evident aspiration at having been a playwright or anything like that it's just like right. it's a flex and i think some of it with her like you could make the case that there's something sort of that it seems like it's a personal thing like you know like like a reflexive like here like when i if i if i run a yellow light i have to draw a little cross on the windshield right that's just me i got in the habit of doing that and now i do that right i don't have to have to if i somehow my hands are busy i don't think ruin will befall me. But, and if I yawn with my, without being able to cover my mouth, I have to draw a little cross on my forehead with my knuckle. These are sort of vague ritualistic things that I'm sure I could cure myself of if I wanted to, you know, I could go see a therapist and be done with it. It's not like some life thing, but I have a ton of these, right? I have, like, I have a lot of them. You get it. You, you develop an affection for your tics, right? Sure. And her whole thing feels like it stems from you know, this is how I do things. Like, I don't think she sat down and said, I'm going to, you know, part of it feels like it's coming out of her naturally. Like it's, it's a form of self-expression. kind of. You know? It's her instinct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In that sense, it's like, so it's weird. So like, so there's this romance of Kerouac, right? Just writing as it comes to him. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I prompted Burnett is kind of doing that too. <laughs> she's outlining her book, but she's also just expressing exactly how it seems to her the right way to tell a story. Exactly. And for those who don't have the time to read the Hillary Sperling biography, we want to start with just a, a short, a short pricey on her life. So Ivy Compton Burnett wrote 20 novels examining English upper class life in the Victorian and Edwardian periods. When asked to provide a short bio to accompany her books, she wrote, I have had such an uneventful life that there is little to say, but this is not entirely, entirely true. It's a thousand pages long. <laughs> Exactly. So she was the seventh of 12 children. And this family did not escape the violent happenings that feature in A House in Its Head or in her other books. Her closest brother died of pneumonia. Another one died in World War One, 
and most bizarrely, two of her younger sisters poisoned themselves in a suicide pact on Christmas Day, uh, 1917. How old would Burnett have been in, in 1917? 33, 32 or 33. Yeah, that's really yeah. awful. Yeah. I mean, there's never yeah. a good time for that, but like, I think in your early 30s as you're sort of getting some perspective on things to have something like that happen. Yeah. yeah. And none of the 12 Compton Burnett siblings had any children of their own, which seems a little improbable for the time period. And she spent much of her life in Kensington with a companion, the English furniture writer, Margaret Jourdain. So while it maybe is not always appropriate to make a sort of connection between a writer's life and the type of work that they do, it does seem like the tragedies in her family history explain the kind of writer she ended up becoming. What do you make of that sort of connection, if anything? So I came up in 90s POMO academia, where we always wanted to argue that it didn't matter at all, that only the book mattered. I'm not, you know, I think you can lean too far the other way and and say that, you know, that everything is about the person who wrote it, you know, and I'm, and there's a sense in which I'm not too interested in you know, in the person's life where it becomes like fixation on the celebrity, whether they were a good person or a bad person. Yeah, I care to yeah. a certain extent. Uh, but I do think it informs, you know, I think there's sort of a classical way of approaching this that I like where you say, well, look, if a person didn't learn to read until they're 10 and now they're a novelist, that's an important biographical detail of how they think of books, right? And if a person writes about a lot of families and comes from a big one and the family had a lot of bad things happen to them. I think if she was writing only fantasy, that would inform it in a different way. But for those of you who haven't read the book, <laughs> her books almost uniformly, as far as I can tell, I haven't read all 20, but when you read them, you are struck by how similar they are. They all begin at the breakfast table, every last one yes. of them, right? um, with families talking. And they are very acerbic with one another. They're very, they're sarcastic, you know, and, and there's, there's sort of a mood of distress, but also, some of them, usually the men are kind of delighted in the distress. You know, it's, there's a sadism to, to yeah. the scene. And in that, I think there's also like a sort of a latent longing for some imagined normalcy, right? But also like, this is what makes her so amazing is like, but they also, given where and when they take place, you assume that she's older than she actually is, that she's writing from yeah. the middle of the 18th. 50s but she's writing the 20th century right she's yes, like yes. interested in this other time which is the time when she was a child right and so there's a sense in which it's sort of seems almost corrective or it's like giving her her child self a chance to comment on what she saw comments she mm-hmm. wouldn't have been able to make in that situation and, th- and those things that's important to know about about her is like to know when she was writing it it makes a big difference and the fact that some of it can get so funny once you've been immersed in it for a while uh, and then not, you know, it's like, it's like quite, it's, it's make you feel guilty for thinking, well, this is funny. It's like, yeah, but these are beastly people, you know, <laughs> and they are, and they're all coming from inside of you. you know? I, I did to sort of follow that. I wanted to read a little bit from the afterward of this uh, edition from Francine prose. I think it really sums up well a general sense of what it is to read an Ivy Compton Burnett book. To read the hilarious, harrowing work of Ivy Compton Burnett is to be persuaded that Darwin could have skipped the expedition to Tierra del Fuego and simply stayed at home to observe the truly ferocious, unrelenting struggle for dominance and survival enacted every morning around the Victorian breakfast table. How fitting (laughs) that the first scene of A House in Its Head should include the burning of a book, a scientific work, imicable to the faith of the day, a volume that sounds suspiciously like Darwin, whose clear, harsh view of the natural order could serve as a blueprint for this novel, which, in its own furiously chatty and grimly chippier way, 
may be among the funniest and most remorseless and savage ever written. The novels of Ivy Compton Burnett are less like conventional fiction than like the laboratory notes of a meticulous and rather mad scientist. With the variables altered only slightly, most of her 19 books begin at the breakfast, concern household tyranny, death, remarriage, and results in squabbles over inheritance, and involve notably old-fashioned melodramatic plot devices. Each inaugurates a new phase of her obsessive research into the corrosive chemistry produced when power and money interact with civilized domesticity. Yeah, I should read Francine Prose, actually. I haven't read her stuff, but it says in the the overleaf that she has three collections of stories and ten novels herself, and she got nominated for the National Book Award for one of them. It's great. It's really insightful and good. It's really... One thing that makes it special is, again, it's in this form that seems almost ritual. It's like it's almost all dialogue. Such expository prose as there is isn't making a lot of commentary, but you kind of can't miss. But that they have this this form, you know, that, that they adhere to. There's, there's something very, it welcomes you into itself as you read them. I think anybody who is interested should read at least two. You know, it's yes. like you want to... I get a feeling for what's going on. But uh, but also, and the other thing is, I don't generally reread books. Right? I just don't, I'm going to die without having read all the books I want to read, so I don't go back and read one again. But when you open hers up, having read it once, the humor is much more visible to you, right? Mm-hmm. It's much more clear. It, in this one, because there's no expository prose, you have to do so much work reading Ivy Cotton Red, just figuring out what's happening. A lot of action takes place off stage, right? You have to fill in some some missing pieces, often for very important parts. People die off stage, and you become aware because now people are talking about them in the past tense. <laughs> it's really, it's, it, you know, which is so modern. And her stuff, because it all takes place in Victorian or immediately post-Victorian England, although I think there's some of them, like one commentator that I read says, you know, you think these are Victorians, but, but no, you read more. These are people who are pretending to still be in the Victorian age, but it's later. Which is interesting. D- Dylan, you want to talk about the cover? Yeah, yeah. We- oh, yeah. I hadn't looked into this until you put it in your notes for this. And this is actually really interesting. Yeah, I got to say, I think this is my favorite cover that we've covered on this show so far. The cover image is a detail of a sculpture called Ghost by Rachel White Reed. White Reed is a sculptor known for her cast of spaces, creating an odd inside out view of a familiar setting. Ghost is a cast of a Victorian parlor. In making what is usually negative space positive, the sculptor sought to almost mummify the air. Compton Burnett turns classical storytelling on its head, and so Ghost produces a similarly disorientating effect in that way. John, what did, what did you think of the artwork when you uh, looked into it? So it, the thing is, when I was reading the book, I didn't think anything of it at all. Right? I sure. Just, it looks like, a, looks like a door, but it's not a door. Um, and when you read about that, it's like, that's a really... It's the sort of thing I really like, especially because in my other gig, I'm a musician, right? And I have had to learn the hard way over many years that if you make the subtle choice, then the only victory you get is the one that you yourself get, right? If you don't, if you don't let everybody know exactly what you're doing, very few people are going to notice. <laughs> so it's like this reality is like, you know, you, you, as a child, you have this, oh no, if I do good work, everybody will, it'll eventually get the attention it merits. There are probably incredible artists out there right now uh, who no one will ever read their work or hear their music right? <laughs> so because because it has, you have to sort of bang the drum for it. And one great thing about New York Review of Books is because, uh, you know, I actually don't know anything about its endowment or anything, but I assume it's well-funded so they can afford to go look at the cover. Right? The cover looks mm-hmm. like that. If it doesn't pop from the... Uh, from the shelf at the airport, we're not trying to sell it to the people at the airport anyway. <laughs> it's like, and there's a, 
you already know if you want to read. And there's a subscription model. I think it's actually a good right. I like subscription models a lot because that way the pressure is off to make it pop from the shelf, right? To, 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 to make it have to reach out to you. And that's what's cool about this is like, I didn't know until this morning when I looked at your notes for this podcast, what a cool thing to have on the cover that I think very few readers will actually go and look up. You know, I think, sure. I think to really put in a little extra effort to do that. And I hadn't in, in part because the feeling of finishing an Ivy, Ivy Compton Burnett book is kind of traumatic. It's, it's oh, yes. <laughs> oh yes. Really, Okay, wow. And you kind of want to read another one right away, but you also kind of want to give her some space. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the epigraph to Devil House is a quote from A House and Its Head. Why did that book speak to you when you were writing your own? Why did you pick uh, that line in particular? Well, I mean, I had had written the book uh, already. I'd written Devil House already. It had a different ep- epigram. It's like choosing the epigram for your book. It can go a number of ways, uh, and, there, and there's no no determined way of doing it, right? It's like, mm-hmm. uh, but I do think the best for me, the best time to do it is once the book's already in draft, and you're reading whatever else you're reading, and and sort of noticing things. And the the epigram is uh, Dulcia said Sybil in a low, half weeping tone as Grant and Beatrice moved away. People always say strange things when something happens, don't they? <laughs> in, in my book. Uh, what this is referring to is that that something uh, there's there's been a, a grisly murder and people are starting to make up stories to explain yeah. it, right that, that don't that aren't the truth of it. But it, in this family, it would mean something entirely different. I like the way it sounded with reference to my own book, and I also liked the fact that it's one thing you do with epigrams is pull them from their own context and put them in a new one, and they become something entirely different, which is a neat thing to do with words. Right? It's a fun thing to do with words to say. Yeah. When I quote this in this context, it becomes something entirely different which is kind of what the quote is saying in the first place. So, Yeah. I thought it worked really well with the book in that way. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I also, I also always lean toward, I don't want big splashy epigrams. Right? Oh, sure. I want something that, that sort of makes you scratch your head and wonder what it's going to have to do with anything rather than something that says, you know, like friend of my high school chose an Immanuel Kant quote for his senior quote out of the crooked tin. <laughs> never be made right well that's that's a big thing you know <laughs> i think i want to set the table with something that says okay i'm not quite sure where i sit here <laughs> sure i wonder how many how many people if any picked up the book after reading a quote from it in yours well that's the other thing is they always hope right and i've been putting epigrams on my stuff since my first seven inch right that i always quote somebody else in part because one of my professors uh, her main theme was allusion in, in roman literature and under her tutelage, I came to think that, you know, that you're almost always referring to something else, it, whether, and Derrida was like this too, that, that you're always, whatever you're doing, you're reading something you've already read that you're incapable of doing a perfect reading of, so your own reading becomes its own thing, right? all these sorts of things. But, but also, I, you know, if somebody might read your stuff, that's an opportunity to point them in the direction of something cool, right? Yeah. In a way that is very unlike writing a review or something. It's very... You know, like the only reviewing you're doing is you look at my epigram. If you enjoyed my book, you know, that's something that I in some way probably enjoyed. Maybe I can see Joan Didion <laughs> using epigrams from people whose work she didn't like. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. But yeah, so it's, it's a way of pointing. To, it's sort of like on old punk rock uh, records. There used to be lists of bands at the end. Metal bands too, but punk often is specific particular moment in mid-90s punk where a band would just list a bunch of other bands at the bottom. Pre-internet, this was a way of hearing of bands you might like. If Propagandi puts 20 bands on their sleeve, you go look up a few of them if you can. And 
and doing an epigram is, is something like that. It's like saying, well, here's a little thing, and, and that's who, who wrote it. If you're curious about what shaped the brain that made this. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And when we opened Devil House and saw that, you know, Ivy was there, it's like, oh my gosh. You don't know who it's going to reach, but you also, it, it is also a form of sort of outreach is like, you know, if you're, if your reading is fairly broad, then your epigram can sort of indicate that breadth to people who might, might not otherwise have, have known, right? I mean, who do I have? I had Robert E. Howard in Wolf in White Van. And who did I have for Universal Harvester? Oh, Benjamin Tamu's Minotaur. Right. Yeah. But secret agents like God only give signs to their confidants. They are also very cruel and even unhappy at times. At any rate, they keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, who published that? I always want to say it's Europa, but I'm not sure. But the thing is, like, an epigram I choose might also refer in part to whatever publishing house I had a crush on at the time, you know, because I get mm -hmm. publishing house crushes and I feel like I'm in good company with this. <laughs> like, you'll know what I mean. Yeah. It's Europa Editions, yeah. It's it's their it's their world world noir subdivision, right? Which I think is so cool, you know. As I, I I like a lot of would be intellectuals, I'm drawn to genre fiction, you know. But then I have to read. I my main thing, like I say, I'm reading Karamazov now, and when I'm reading something like that, I go, "You're home. This is who you really are." Is reading books like, that. you know, that's where I feel most fed, you know. But but I want to know more genre fiction because every everybody I respect loves it, you know. But often you'll grab some that's not so great. When somebody like Europa does it, there's like a filtering process where it's like, we are putting out stuff specifically for people like you who mainly would read literary fiction, but also have a thirst for detective fiction. Right? So. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. Compton Burnett novels are unusual in that they unfold largely through conversation. This is something we have mentioned. What do you think is accomplished through dialogue that couldn't be achieved through more traditional means? So there's a couple a couple levels at which I would want to answer that question. And one of them is formally, and the other is the personal stuff we're talking about, right? That, mm -hmm. but, but formally what's accomplished is, is that it makes the reader work a little more, right? Which I think is a, is a choice, you know, it's one problem I have when I read genre fiction, I go, Oh, come on. I don't, I don't need you to describe this for me. I'll get that. <laughs> what's going on. You know, I don't need you to be referencing the, the brand of clothing these people are wearing, you know, whereas those are things in genre fiction that you often do signposts, right? Conrad Burnett's not giving you any of that, right? No. Uh, she, she's, she gives you what the people are saying to each other, and she's coming at it with the assumption that you are reader enough to do something with that. I also don't get the impression that she's especially concerned what you do with it. Like, <laughs> these are books, you know, that, that I think if you don't get it, that's fine with her, right? She's not doing this to communicate to you. No. Right? She has a point she wishes to make that when the book is finished, will have been made, and it's not about connecting with a reader at that point at that level. Well, as a writer, you sort of have like a really, I do anyway, a sense of awe with somebody of whom you can really say, yeah, you, uh, you don't care. <laughs> do you? <laughs> You're not. And some of that is privilege. Like, I don't know if she had any money or not in her life, but like, you know, but a writer who can say that often is a writer who's not worrying about the rent. Right. Whereas a writer, mm -hmm. who like, look, I have to do some fan service or there's people like me who are like, I just don't like the idea of people being unhappy when they come away from something I make. Sure. Like I want them to have a feeling of satisfaction and that's just how I'm built. Right. But I, but I think her satisfaction feels like it's completely in the book itself. Right. It's, it's that's like brilliant. the personal thing going on, which is so weird because they're all in the third person. There is no breaking of the wall where no. suddenly the narrator as Victorian writers would do, you know, as Dickens will do step on and let you know, 
what he's thinking, you know, in some way. And, yeah. and Dickensian writers, you know, say, well, I, I, I hate to burden the reader with this because it's an ugly scene, that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd be comfortable to say that at all. <laughs> and you wonder if she relishes burdening the reader with these scenes, <laughs> right? But I think it is that to, to, you know, it feels like a real faith that the scenes speak for themselves, right? That, yeah. that, that the, the, the visions that she's having or that, you know, that she's repeating and maybe feels burdened to repeat are self-explanatory. I don't know that they are. This is where it feels like a very personal thing. It's like, I think a lot of the time you go, to you, this is very clear. I had to read that scene three times to figure out what was going on. <laughs> In her mind, all of it is extraordinarily clear. And that's the part of it that feels like this is actually weirdly personal fiction. Right? Yeah. Along that line where you talk about how you as a writer, like admire that just complete authenticity in her writing. Yeah. Kasi and I were re- just talking before you jumped on that. Like she's not a reader's reader. She's a writer's writer or yes, that's right. Yeah. You know, she's not a writer reader's would... writer, but a writer's writer. And yeah. you know, there's these letters from Elizabeth Taylor that Kasi told me about that was like, who was she writing to again, Cassia? This guy, Robert Lydell, who's like a critic oh, yeah. and, a, and a friend of hers, and Elizabeth Taylor, the novelist Elizabeth Taylor, if it need be said. They wrote, she she and Robert exchanged all these letters about her visits to to Ivy. And she kind of, they were contemporaries, but she was kind of like coming up behind her and um, admired her her writing and, and you know, would, would write these letters where she say, oh, would list what type of jam she put on her toast and kind of obsessing over her every little move <laughs> and, and whatnot. But they, they seemed to be, even though they were equals on some level, like she kept uh, in arm's length, even from other writers. And the yep. books have a, have a, a feeling where it's like, she's kind of throwing this down to you. Like she's not, like you said, whispering in your ear and creating a warmth and a closeness with the reader that like Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte wanted to do. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta say, I think that that does is one of the things that makes her writers, writers, most writers know the desire for approval. You know, Uh, I don't think it's just, I mean, I'm a performer also, so there's no question, you know, I desire approval, right? It's like, there's a known thing about me, at least attention, right? Some writers can reasonably make a claim. No, I don't actually want your attention. I want to be making these books. Salinger can reasonably said he did not want any more attention after a certain point. He had gotten his yeah. film, right. But uh, but with Burnett, I think a writer like Burnett is imagining attention from her peers, you know, and doesn't yeah. need to know about it, right? Doesn't need really to be told. Every writer, when I started reading her stuff a couple of years ago. Every writer I would talk to about it would go, oh, yeah, I went through a period where I read like six of hers in a row. <laughs> it's like all I could read was every time. And like, so, so she really yeah. is like a, a, a watchword among authors. You go through a, a, a period of it. And like the thing is, I feel like I talked to somebody who like meant to read all 19. It feels like it would be a major, like if you'd done that without doing all of Dickens, it feels like a pretty intense commitment to make. <laughs> but also sort of going along with that point of like how she doesn't give you anything as a really big film fan i was reminded of ozu where ozu yes. is very yeah. elliptical and you know all of his scenes are just sort of dialogues when all the marriage and deaths and tragedies all happen off screen yeah but i think ozu believes but ozu ozu's not as caustic as uh well, no, the thing is i think the world that ozu the world as ozu understands it is in its final analysis a beautiful place with space for tranquility and also struggle right? yes. and also real human struggle but uh, uh, but a place that he loves, right? I, you know, <laughs> I, I think Ivy Compton Burnett 
does not have a lot of faith in people. No. <laughs> is she really has faith in her words, though. Yeah, no, that's right. I think she thinks that language is better than people. And I, I don't, you know, I can't launch a very great argument against that position. <laughs> you, know, you know, most of us try, try to conceive of, of, of a different position to hold, you know. Yeah. Whereas picture on the front of the biography, you get the, the impression she's going like, well, I'm, I'm going to live as long as I have to, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she is. Um, she's got a look, certainly. Yeah. yeah. So though sparse, her, her occasional expository passages or narrative passages and descriptions of characters, which only come once immediately after a character is introduced, usually, they do communicate a lot of information and they are important. And I think as you learn to read her books and you read more of them, you think, oh, I need to pay attention because she wouldn't be putting a paragraph here without dialogue unless it really had to be there. Yeah, yeah. How did you see those parts of the book kind of contributing to the overall effect? Well, you, <laughs> it's, it's this way in which you feel like you're being educated in how to read the book as you go, that like they become yes. very exciting, you know, exciting in a, in a, and, and, but also, but also you can sort of, once you're completely on board with all the dialogue, like if we go here to page, uh, if we go to chapter seven, there's so little at that point. If you go in the middle of chapter seven, it's just plays, you know, superfluous Miss Burton Shaw with your father at your elbow, said Mrs. Bode, gently and fully giving Miss Burton Shaw her place in the scheme, right? <laughs> wow. From Ivy Compton Burnett, that might as well be three pages of expository prose explaining to you who this is. <laughs> You, you take it like water in the desert. You go, okay, now I know a little more than I was able to, to know. And it's not like she's being hopelessly obscure, but she's really trusting you to read tone in words. And this is where, again, it seems personal, where it seems like she sees the entire scene and knows all the people in it, right? She doesn't feel obligated to introduce you to them because the scene's going to be vivid enough if you're doing your job, right? Mm. I love that. I mean, any, I think any writer has to love how bold that is, how, how really... How, how, how trusting, like it feels like almost a, a gesture of love toward the whole idea of books, right? That they, that they, you put the stuff in the book and you trust it to do what it's supposed to do once it gets out there. <laughs> and so, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and, and obviously meticulously revised, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's, oh, it's sure. just like writing it down and letting it go. Is that what I mean by that? It's like, I think, I think it's, it's becoming very much its own thing. But there's also, you know, there's always letters in her books, aren't there? Somebody. Oh, I love yeah. it when the letter pops yes. up. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I mean, that's very. Also, what's funny is like that's a very 19th century thing yeah. that makes you think you're reading a 19th century author, right? So it's also one of the few, the few aspects of the book that breaks the claustrophobia. It's when true. they get a letter from somewhere else, you're like, oh, there's an outside world. These people aren't actually trapped here. They are in some way choosing to live here. I know that is a great claustrophobia is right because so many of these books like you go we're still in this house we haven't gone anywhere and, and when somebody leaves, <laughs> when somebody moves out you go and then they come back you go no 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 you'll never escape <laughs> <laughs> i know the one of the biggest excursions i ever have in this whole book is they just go to church which is just down the block oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. when we're talking about this there's a part towards the end where they're walking back from church and i believe it's dulcia and oscar are talking to each other and then suddenly Grant starts talking and you realize, oh, Grant is in this scene with them. Yes, and then they mention, oh, Duncan is walking ahead of us. And so all she needed to say is we're walking back from church. She didn't have yeah. to say Grant and Dulcia and Oscar walk across yeah. the snow to cross the road yeah. to home. It, it's just 
we are there. It is it is so enticing and invigorating to have these things just sort of brought out to you in the interactions yeah. that way. But that whole, also, just the very brief description is needed to say. Yeah. There's something else that happened. I noticed while I was thumbing through because I, I opened it up and I haven't read it in a year or two. And I, I, I called my wife and said, oh my gosh, she's so, <laughs> it's, it's so amazing that you open chapter one. As we say, they almost all begin at the breakfast table. So, so the children are not down yet, said Ellen Edgeworth. Her husband gave her a glance and turned his eyes toward the window. So it's the beginning of the book. You're not used to just pausing there, but I'm going to pause. Mm-hmm. So the children are not down yet, said Ellen Edgeworth. Her husband, okay, if we have Ellen Edgeworth, she's asked whether the children are downstairs yet. Her husband responded how? Gave her a glance and turned his eyes toward the window. That's really weird, right? Like, norm- I'm married, and I would say, oh, no, they're still asleep or something. And if I was angry, if we had a fight going, no, they're not down yet, in a mean way, but I wouldn't just look at the window. Right? It's very strange. <laughs> so the children are not down yet, she said on a note of question. Mr. Edgeworth put his finger down his collar and settled his neck. So you are down first, Duncan, said his wife, as the word of her observation in a more acceptable form. Duncan returned his hand to his collar with a frown. And then she launches into a description of Duncan Edgeworth. That goes on for two paragraphs. So you are down first of all, Duncan, said Ellen, employing a note of propitiation as if it would serve its purpose. And, and, and then she has to do it. Her husband implied by lifting his shoulders that he could hardly deny it, right? So this, this, is, this is excruciating, right? It's like if you were in that situation, you know, I mean, we live in the age of friends and text messages. You go, I, I guess my husband isn't talking to me this morning or won't answer my questions. This is hell. So 130 pages later, 130 pages later. So Allison is not down yet, Father? Duncan did not reply. So Allison is not yet down, Father? Duncan caused himself to smile. I can hardly say she is down, can I, Sybil? I wondered if she was tired after yesterday. Then you did not express yourself very clearly. <laughs> It's, it could be a Seinfeld episode, right? <laughs> right. And, and the thing is, like, there's actually, I feel like people wrote little listicle type articles about that. Like, if you took the laugh track off Seinfeld, you realize you're in the presence of, of, of very unpleasant people being very unpleasant to each other. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, but there's, but it, it's more, it, this is much more like, like a Fassbinder movie to me. I don't know if you, if you, you know, oh, right yeah. that's, that's a great comp. Well, it's it, because, and it feels like the same sort of, in his case, he went to live a life with the freaks, right? That's what he, I mean, uh, he, he was out and he, he went to live in swinging Berlin and, and live his life, right? Ivy Compton Burnett didn't go live what, whatever other life she might have envisioned. She just describes this. So when he does, when he does like, uh, oh, what's the one, uh, why does hair R run amok, right? This is I another. Seen that, one. Seen that one it's, I haven't. It's almost all dialogue. It's just people talking to each other. And at the end, there is a great explosion of violence, right? That yeah. usually doesn't happen in these books, but it's the same sort of concept is like there's this horror of, of, of the normal world, right? Of, of, and you could call it an insight, but I don't know about that. I, I, would, I would back away from that and go, well, that's, that's your own horror of this. I mean, certainly the scenes she's describing are horrific, but you're the one envisioning these, right? So. Mm-hmm. Also, I should say that this is the least amount of dialogue of every any part of this book was the opening yeah. that you just read. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's uh, there's you you go thirty or forty pages with almost nothing. But uh, I forget how does it. And when they end, it's always very. We ran out of film. <laughs> so, yeah. 
when we talk about Duncan, though, in this scene, as this yes. like sort of terrifying figure, which he is, yeah, we have mentioned that her books revolve around a tyrant figure a lot. The bully at the heart of this book is Duncan Edgeworth. His character is established in the book's opening scene, as you just read. And he, later in the scene, as the children start to come down, it's Christmas Day. This this cold, horrible scene is Christmas morning. <laughs> Upon opening his present, Grant... In the of Duncan Edgeworth, I want to say that Christmas morning, as we understand it as 21st century Americans, is a, is a relatively recent invention. Yeah. Right? It's, like, yeah. it's not the, the expectation that everybody's going to have a jolly time. I think it was a religious day, but like a lot of that mm-hmm. commercial stuff comes into it <laughs> yeah it's at least a day of importance and this yeah. this guy is giving no note <laughs> grant their nephew who is basically living as their son opens a copy of a book presumably a, a copy of on the origin of species yes and he uh duncan just takes it and throws it into the fire and that that is a perfect <laughs> introduction about who duncan is so what does Duncan's character and others' responses to him say about the power relations within families to you, John? Well, I mean, there's so much in that because he doesn't seem like a particularly godly or pious person, right? No. Uh, but, but, but the doing of this is sort of in the name of piety, right? And when you have somebody doing that, you know, it's hard not to see the writer saying, well, these pious people, here's what they really are. They're just yeah. ruthless. But yeah, he, I mean, he, he rules with a sort of an iron fist. It is one of the things that like her being a modern writer, you think part of what she may be doing is pointing out that like often when you read older books, you say, you know, why, like I have this problem with Jane Austen, you know, everybody loves Jane Austen. And, and I, this is one reason when I read Tolstoy, it's easier for me because Tolstoy lets Anna Karenina have sex, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what she wants to do with sure. her affair. Partner. And in English books, these people are dying for lack of getting together, right? But no, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's a goddamn lie. These people were doing all kinds of things. When you read French Lieutenant's Woman, right? He's honest. And he's like, no, no, it, it happens. And probably it's not very good for either of them, but it happens, you know? Yeah. Whereas in a lot of this stuff, there's a real dishonesty about, about how people are behaving. And I think uh, Burnett, when she has this ruthless guy being pious, is doing a little of this, is, like, is, is, is wanting to say, well, they run all these errands of society. They're purportedly good businessmen and householders. I mean, but the, the other thing is like the house itself, some of the very spare physical descriptions indicate that it's not well kept, right? That there's like, mm-hmm. there's repairs that are needed, right? He's out of money, right? So, yeah. so there's, there's, a, there's a very hesitant interrogation of the hypocrisy, right? I mean, I think there's also a broader, it's obvious that like, you know, the way he is isn't working for anybody, including himself. Right, but but it's not a tragedy where like he's going to get insight and you know and, no. and, and ways right. But 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 so there's I mean I think that's part of it is is to interrogate that. I and mean, this is where it's like you could make you could give a good feminist reading to most of her books and say this is an ex, this this exposes how power relations between men and women are failing men and women, right? Um, mm. in, in her books, right? But I don't you know. If I were making that case, I, I, I would make it with gloves on because I feel like it's a little more ruthless than that. I, I, I don't think there's a corrective impulse in it. You know, I think it's descriptive. Yeah. I think it, 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 it's almost confessional in saying, you know, it's like, no, no, I just have to tell you what I saw over and over mm-hmm. what I saw. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she doesn't seem to be implying a message. You, there there's, there yeah. can be one there to be learned, but yeah. 
Well, it's easy for us to read a message like this. Well, you have to not be living this way, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. But, but, but that's one of the things that's so attractive is like that that she's not letting you in on her own goals in writing this. You know, it's like whatever she's taken care of by doing it, it's not your business. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So Compton Burnett, she studied the classics. So she was steeped in Greek tragedy. Yes. She read these books, but uh, the books contain tragic elements and certain hallmarks of, you know, incestuous affairs and like mistakes coming back to haunt people. But it's all, all played for laughs. How did you see her taking classical elements and like unsettling them and creating something new and unfamiliar with that? So, you know, I hadn't thought of this until you mentioned it, but I said earlier that all the action takes place off stage, right? Mm -hmm. This is true in Greek tragedies, right? And in, in yes. in, in, in notably not always in Roman tragedy, in Seneca, right? But in Greek tragedy, partly because of where it's being staged, it's not inside a building, it's, it's in these big open amphitheaters and there's no place for you to go off stage. When the, when, when the murder happens in the Greek tragedy, it's reported by a messenger. A messenger comes in and says, oh, it's horrible. When Medea kills the children, it happens off stage. When Oedipus takes his eyes out, it happens off stage. And somebody comes on and says, you won't believe what I just saw. My, you know, my favorite Aeschylus, Seven Against Thebes, there's a giant army massing. How do you know? The messenger comes and says, I, there's seven people at the gates of the city. I'm going to describe their shields for you so you'll know what you're up against, right? <laughs> and, uh, but the thing is, I, I should warn your listeners that if they don't feel what I do, this is my theme, Greek tragedy, and I get really myself in excelsis when I get into Greek tragedy. I talk faster, and I, and I don't probably explain myself. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but so I had a shtick because I studied Greek tragedy in college, and one thing undergrad is about is like learning what your angle is on whatever the topic is that yeah. you're doing. And my belief in Greek tragedy is that it's a, a sort of a, for a variety of reasons, no character in a Greek tragedy can know what's going to happen to them, right? even though you as a reader know for two reasons. One, the story's old as time already. They're not making yeah. up new stories. Right? And two, even from within the text, the signs are everywhere. Right? The signs are everywhere. You can see, you, could, you are Oedipus on the road to, uh, and, and a person uh, stops you and, and, and curses you, right? and uh, you, you murder him, and, and the signs are everywhere what's going to happen to you. Right. But you can't read those signs until you go through the tragedy. Right. That's how you would get the vocabulary to describe the signs. You can't get that vocabulary until the tragedy hits you. That is the paradox. Right. It's like if you like Oedipus manage somehow to survive it, then at Colonus, you will actually have insight into your own tragedy. This doesn't happen in most tragedies and most of them. Everybody dies and nobody gets any insight until maybe the moment of their death or right as it's approaching when they, mm -hmm. this moment where they all go, oh my God, this was inevitable, right? And I yeah. should have known, right? And, and I think that's what's satisfying about Greek tragedy is when bad things happen in your own life, you later go, oh my God, I, I could have solved this. And it's, I mean, it's facile, but hindsight is twenty twenty is sort of the message there, right? And so Ivy Confident Burnett's characters are almost entirely unable to parse their own situation. Right. She has saddled them with a total absorption in their identity, in their, I would say, assigned sociocultural identities, right? That they don't, they do not have any freedom to be other than what they are, except they are constantly doing crazy things that are clearly bucking against, you know. But I think there is that sense that every character in an Ivy Compton Burnett book 
is acting out a story that has already been written for them, right? That everybody knows, right? And this is exactly the case with Greek tragedy. It's never telling a new story. And in fact, the Romans, when they do Greek tragedy, one thing that they that they boast about is they always will make a point of saying, and then English writers do this in the 15th, 16th century also, I'm not telling you a new story. This is an old story, right? And and for the Romans, it's a, it's a point of pride. They don't want to be inventing things. They totally are, but they will always claim, oh, I got this story from the Greeks. And in Chaucer, he does that too, right? He always says, oh, I'm just telling you an old story. And Chaucer is reinventing the entire English language, right? But in, in, the, in, in that sense that, that everybody is playing out a role that already existed for them before they were born, right? That's entirely determined by the circumstances in which they live and that they have no choice about, right? And that's sort of the hell of Greek tragedy, but also the pleasure of it is that you know what's going to happen to these people and you take vicarious pleasure in seeing it happen to them. I don't know if that happens in Hunter Burnett books. You would have to hate the characters the way that she does, right? To, to really take that pleasure. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't care for, for most of the people there. Yeah, it's amazing because you think at first that it's mainly the head of the house that's getting the brunt, but you do later think that she's saying, no, everybody here has been poisoned by this. You know, yeah, no, yeah. Nobody, no, no, nobody is going to escape. Yeah, Duncan starts as the tyrant and he's never not necessarily the tyrant, but other people do just as bad, if not worse things than him too. No, yeah, like every, every, <laughs> yeah, but like you said, I do like how the book is more of a, a Greek chorus where it's just sort of the neighbors yes. and townspeople describing what happened to our main characters rather than the main characters doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, that's the part where there's some, it feels like ritual is like, do you just not want to describe stuff? Is it, is it sort of not in your nature to want to do that? But when she does get a paragraph in, it's perfectly serviceable expository prose. It's not, you know, purple or anything, but it, it, it lets you know with plenty of, you know, uh, the mourners drifted together as though unaware of what they did. That's a good sentence. You know, it's it's not yeah. it's not for lack of sentences that she's letting somebody else describe. It. And the point about the chorus is well taken. That's 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 right. And as we talk about like the hideous things that people do in this book, there there are many deaths. Uh, there are lies, cheating, affairs, scandals, terrible things. Yeah. But these things are not necessarily treated as one might expect. As we've talked about, it provides fodder for more witty dialogue than anything yeah and those that commit the acts of violence are quite often rewarded for doing so and in light of this what do you think is the morality of a compton burnett book um i mean i think you'd have to impute the morality from behind it i mean i think you know the sure. world as the compton burnett sees it is populated almost entirely by people who are both selfish and incapable of taking care of themselves right they, they, they don't they can't really act yeah. in their own Right. They're, they're saddled by whatever damage preceded them with an inability to, to, to be you know, good enough to themselves, right? whether they deserve it or not, you know? I mean, whether they deserve their own goodness or not. They, they just don't. They, they, have, they have this script they're playing out, like this sort of play acting that they're doing. That feels like the morality is, is, is that as a statement, right? It's like, sure. uh, you know, I mean, there's a sense in which she's sort of saying, all these people are posers. All these people... No one is living an authentic life, you know, mm -hmm. but then, you know, you don't, you, I question whether that's a value for her, right? Whether, whether there's an opposite to, to what she's setting up as bad. I don't, I don't yeah. see, you know, in satire, they always say that, that, you know, that the, that the good satire indicates what the, what the thing being satirized ought to be like, right? You know, right. It's, it's a lesson. Yeah. That it's a lesson. It's a corrective, right? There, there's, there's a real pessimism 
to Burnett that 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 that's you know that this is descriptive, it's exaggerated, but when you pare down the exaggeration, it still feels like a very bleak view of of the way humans are to each other. And the thing is that's horrible about reading her is like you read it, you go, oh well, you're really exaggerating here. You go, yeah, but you're fundamentally right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you can't argue with her, but you're like, but there should be more. I'm not built that way. It's like I believe in the ability of people to be decent to one another, but yeah. I don't think she does. I, 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 <laughs> I think she, look, it's, it's a lovely, lovely idea, you know. But yeah. uh, but here's the people. <laughs> so the morality I would say is 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 a very bleak morality that people that people behave in a self interested manner without actually knowing what their real interests are. Yeah. Yeah, I have this book called A Compton Burnett Compendium, yes. which is super handy for figuring out what happened in which book because all the titles are so similar. It's hard to or remember. Get that one. But it's also like there are plot points that pass like where, and I love this about her, will be between one chapter and next and you won't realize that six months have passed. Right? Yes, right. Yes, hey. time just goes by like that. Oh my God, time is like drugged in Compton Burnett. Like she will not <laughs> yes. let you know. This is much, much later. She won't say it at all. She doesn't like, you can be, as a writer, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to skip six years here, but I'm not going to let them know until the middle of the chapter. And then I'll fold in some sentence that says, you know, that, that indicates that somebody has died. And then you'll go, oh my God, who died? How, when, when did she die? And I'll fill you in. She will not fill you in at all. It's just later. That's all. <laughs> I know. And she, she particularly didn't like pregnancy like you someone is going to have a child it and then and then the child is, exists there was yeah. no childbirth we're not yeah. going to see any of the process that that brought yeah that to well be. i mean she lived in a time when you know as a woman you would have known enough about pregnancy and childbirth to not really want to have to describe that for people sure. but in but in this book the author um violet Pole, who was the the wife of Antony Pole, who was also had a biography written about them by Hilary Sperling. So there is this incestuous uh, English yes. literary community that was similar to <laughs> that of the world of her books. But um, she suggests in this book that Nance, who is the oldest daughter of Duncan's, is as near a heroine as the author ever allowed herself to create. Huh. And I think there, like Nance's position in this book, there is this overwhelming bleakness, but there is subtleties between, you know, different proportions of good to evil or like some characters are more aware of them, a little bit more aware of themselves, even if they kind of go, go along to get along. Yes. So I was, I was interesting what, like what you thought about either Nance's character or just like some of the moral ambiguity that's, that's tucked in, in there. If you're really laser focused on it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, it seems like such an obvious '70s way of putting it, but I mean, I think you know there is a villain in this book and in her books, and it's the head of the house. Yeah, uh, it's that's that's the villain. Right? Everybody else's ill doings are sort of sparks off of that flame. Yeah, right? they're, yeah. You know, it's like they're they're reacting when somebody manages to be independent, right? When somebody manages to pull themselves out from under the shadow of Duncan Edgeworth. Right as Nance, right? Then they're able to think for themselves a little bit, right? And not wholly, right? And it would be the thing is, I think it would make a very uninteresting book, right? For you know, a book that would satisfy a lot more modern urges for one to get free and live a good life, you know. But we all know that story, and that story is fantasy for the most part. And so in in Burnett, you have people who make a little bit of who make a little headway, right? Mm. 
that's the hero. And if you get one, it's like somebody who, who has a little more clarity and, but yet doesn't break free. Right. You no, know, they, she never they, leaves they the same sort of, and the repartee, that's, that's the thing is like, this all sounds like it's so bleak, but it's also very funny. The, the, right. the Once you, once you have accepted the milieu, even Duncan Edgeworth, he's hilarious, right? He's like, he is, he is, you know, when he, is she down yet as well? She's certainly not up. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you talk about that, there was a book we did earlier on the show called Mary Olivier, A Life by Mason Clare. Hmm. And that is a similar book where we were so confounded by it, where it's mainly about a woman living with her abusive mom. And the whole time you're just like, she has to realize, right? And in the end, she just never realizes it. She doesn't. Yeah. And it was honestly one of my favorite things we've read. It's completely unlike anything that would be written today, anything that would even be like considered to be on a shelf today. But it is incredibly affecting to see that play out. Well, I mean, this is the, without wanting to overgeneralize, but this is, I think, one reason I like to read translated literature more is I think I find less yeah. projection and wish fulfillment there than mm-hmm. in American English literature, where there's this presumption that that what people want to here is they want they want to be able to find who where am I in this story which mm-hmm. which character do I want to be right whereas you know I think in a lot of Eastern European literature especially it's like you don't want to be sure. any of these people I still tell you a good story right but you don't want to be any of these people and so <laughs> and I think that's what she's doing too is like you know you might have one like Nance if you want to be somebody maybe her more than these others right um, yeah but but I think in most books, you have the person who you're, you're made to identify with. I think the author, consciously or unconsciously, is identifying with somebody and leading you in that direction. Yeah. And then it takes either great pathology or profound control to say, no, no, there's not going to be anybody you relate to here. Right? You, you don't, it's not for that. Yeah. I do want to say that I really enjoy, when we talk about the morality, there's, I, I won't spoil the ending because I, I think it's fun to discover. There is a character that does something hideous and gets like exiled from the house to go live with this, this distant relative who dies and gets there for inheritance and then gets welcomed back into the household because of the Amazing. inheritance. Then gets to be in line of the inheritance of, of Duncan himself. I, I was cackling at just the, the, <laughs> the insane ending. The ruthlessness of it. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, it really... It's one of those things where then you say, who are you? What are you, you know, you say, what is wrong with you? The way that that people did to Thomas Hardy, but Thomas Hardy was like openly trying to say something. You know what it is. You just feel bad that he had to make this horrible thing happen, you know, for you to get the message, right? Whereas, yeah, I mean, the thing is, the horrible thing we're talking about, it's brutal. (laughs) It's really, really bad. And when you realize it's what happened, because she doesn't tell you that it happened, that you go, you get a glimmering of it as it's coming and you go, oh my God, yes. no, 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 you, you, you wouldn't. And she would. Mm. I mean, to, to Burnett, you think oh, you're not actually going to, I mean, that's just. You couldn't, yeah. Terrible, but you should. And, uh, and then and it's as if nothing happened, right? As if nothing. Yep. And that's the point. I mean, it's like, it's really, that that is where it takes its leave a little from what I would normally describe as a sort of aggressive, a very bleak realism. It's like, I don't think, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, in that situation. Yeah they're not being permanent bad feelings <laughs> forever. Susan Sontag wrote in her essay, Notes on Camp. She listed uh, Comte de Burnett books 
as part of the camp canon, which she defined as um, reveling in artificiality and just a love of that kind of fakeness. Because you can't, I mean, this is is like a traumatic story and yet we don't experience it that way. Yeah. And in this book and in many Compton Burnett books, they're often minor characters who are implied to be gay and happily so, happily living with a same-sex partner. Did you see like that element of queerness or transgressiveness? Well, I mean, the thing is like you could, her books, this one and the others, uh, lend themselves pretty readily to the notion that it's, that it's a, a, if not a lampoon, a sort of, a, a, that it's pointing at straight society. And go, Here's how sick these people actually are. You know, it's like yeah. this, this is what, that there's a sense that it's like John Waters, you know. Who was a big fan of Ivy yeah, Compton John, Burnett. Yeah. John Waters loves Ivy Compton Burnett. I didn't know that, but like, but when the straight people come on in in early Waters movies, pre-polyester and, and up through polyester, when the straight people come on the screen, you know you're about to meet some people who the director does not like, right? And so, yeah. <laughs> not that I'm saying Waters is completely like all straight people are terrible, but when he introduces a straight couple, they're monsters, right? Yeah. They're, they're from Monster Town and they don't have any values and <laughs> their values are horrible. And I, and I think there's a sense in which you could read that from Burnett. Uh, I, I mean, I think you certainly could. It is where I have what I would consider unsophisticated reading techniques that I don't, I don't know if you had a hundred lunches with Ivy Compton Burnett, if she would ever concede such a point to you, right? No matter how well no, you- No, I don't think she concede anything. I don't think so. I don't think so. If that's coming from her, I don't think it's coming on purpose, right? I don't, I don't think yeah. she's saying, I'm going to sit down and do this. But I do think it's like, that's one of the things you get. Look, I'm the head of the household. I'm a husband to a wife with two children, right? And when you read her books, you go, yeah, you know, I, I, I can see how it might look that way to you sometimes. You, know, it's like a, you, know, <laughs> you become aware of, of the, the role constriction that you experience as, as a participant in a, in a nuclear family. Yeah. And, and I think there is, I think that critique is there. Whether it matters to you as a reader or not that that critique be intentional is a big question because I think for a lot of people uh, in the present day, and I can't, I can't document this, but my feeling is that a lot of readers want to know that the writer is on their side and is coming from the same place as they are. You're never mm-hmm. going to get that from Ivy Nor, I mean, I would also argue you're almost never going to get that from any writers who are any good. You know, it's like the, yeah. the writers who are good are not programmatic. I, mean, I like Tolstoy a lot, and Tolstoy is coming to teach a lesson. He has a very yeah. particular thing he wants to say to you. But I mean, I think that's why most people would rather read Dostoevsky. It's like Dostoevsky, who I'm reading now, I think is a little more conflicted about who who his people are in the book. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, at minimum, you are seeing a very lucid description of how the normal straight married world looks to somebody who chose not to get married. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. To an English woman who chose not to get married and lived in a time when divulging your sexuality would, if it were anything other than the norm, was frowned upon and certainly would have been frowned upon by her. Like she's not the sort of person, you know, her own upbringing would have, I think, precluded any of that, you know, any, 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 any open living, you know. But then again, it's like our understanding of queerness in England prior to the 60s, right, is, is largely through reconstructive history and stuff. We don't really know what the semaphore was, how openly people talked to each other when they knew they were in a comfortable place. We don't have the evidence of this. Right? We, we, we were maybe doing a lot of conjecture when we talk about that. Yeah. For our final question of the day, uh, I think this is a fun quote to end on. Ivy said of her work, anyone that picks up a Compton Burnett finds it hard not to put down. <laughs> Cer- 
I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true either. But, you know, this was my first Ivy. And Cassia is like probably the biggest fan of Ivy Compton Burnett the world has ever seen. She has a shrine (laughs) with a picture and all of her books. That's so great. I know. (laughs) But it's, 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 I wonder if I would have came to a house in its head and read the first 50 pages without sort of Cassia's influence of like why she liked Ivy. It, it it would have been, I think, really challenging for me. And her writing style requires like that level of focus that some readers might find taxing. In the end, what kept you reading her work and why should our listeners pick her up? Well, I mean, this is the thing. It's like, uh, it depends on what you read for. You know, I mean, to me, we all do our comfort reading. We all, we all, you know, have, for me at this point, Tolstoy is that, you know, it's like, I know what you're going to do. I, 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 I know how you're going to get there. I know that you're going to really take your time getting there and, you know, and that you actually love everybody in the book and that's warm and comforting to me, you know, and uh, even Anna, I think Tolstoy at the end of the day has a lot of pity and compassion for her. But for the most part, I like reading stuff where at some point I'm going to ask myself, what's going on? You know, what, where I'm going to feel adrift and I have to locate my, my, my attention. This is not, you know, I don't have a single thing I like to read, like I say, but, but that's something I really enjoy is having to situate myself. But with Burnett, you only experience that really the first time, right? After that, then you're in this club, right? Where you know what's going on, you know, where you, where you get it and you, and you have settled into this vocabulary of this vocabulary of style. That's, almost entirely unique. It's not a play, right? At some point while you're reading, you're like, you, should, you could make this a play. And it would be like an Edward Albee play. Right? That's exactly what it would be like, you know, but it's not that. Um, it's, it's, it's wholly, you know, you read Ivy Compton Burnett because there has not been another novelist like her. You can't name another novelist like her. You can't compare her really to anybody. And there's very few people of whom you can say that, you know, every writer wants to think I'm the only person doing what I do, but it's almost always a lie, you know, and when I name Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, we can trace their lineage completely, right? They've all read the same people and they know they're trying to be part of that conversation. I have no idea who Ivy Compton Burnett thinks of herself. In <laughs> I, I really don't. I mean, I would argue maybe some dramatists that I couldn't name, you know, maybe, 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 uh, uh, she contemporaneous with Singe, the Irish Dramatist, I can, I, I can see, I'm not sure. I can see her having some sympathy. I don't know how much she went to the theater, you know, but yeah. you know, she has a hyphenated name. She probably went to the theater a little bit. So, so I can see maybe some hidden stuff like that. But for the most part, you read Ivy Compton Burnett to be in the presence of somebody whose whose particular, uh, I like to over to abuse this term, whose terpenes you don't get from anybody else. You know, sure. if you know what terpenes are, but they're they're in in uh, in in weed, right? They're supposed yeah. to what, give it its flavor or something like that. I don't actually smoke myself, but um, but I like the idea of like this this thing that lends something to it that that identifies it, right? And and yeah. and her own you know, spice, if you want a different term, is is not found in other dishes. Yes, I completely agree with that. She is a true original, and I have been like obsessively reading her for years and was hooked from from the beginning the first one of hers that i read which one was your first it was mother and son oh i haven't done that one yeah which i found in a like a secondhand story it was an old virago modern classic yes yes no i asked uh, <laughs> a secondhand store from a particular imprint that's not on the shelves anymore this is yep five and a half yep but like i still don't fully know what like I can't fully pinpoint the appeal or like unravel the mystery of her books 
even having all the secondary books and biographies and, and whatnot that I Letters. could possibly have. I think the Letters. humor keeps coming back, though, because when you get into your second one, that's when you start to realize there's a lot of humor here. Like she, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I think it's a bitter humor. I think, you know, when we say she doesn't really love anybody in the book, you know, she does think they're funny in the way we think people who are messed up are funny. You know, there's a, there's a you know, people will upload films of brawls in the target aisles right right? you know somebody fighting over over a toy or whatever right and and a brawl breaks out and and then something that somebody yelled will will go semi-viral from the brawl i think that's the level of humor for her but in a much more intellectual way it's like look at look at these people listen to listen to when this person says this is it horrible (laughs) it's kind of what she says and there is that sense as the reader you are being invited to be on her side in that like yeah. she's mm-hmm. assuming at least one person out there who will look at these people with the same disregard that she does. Yeah, if there is any hope in the book, it's that it exists and that other people with that sensibility can find it and kind of share a laugh over the horrors <laughs> that they have experienced. Incredibly cold comfort. <laughs> yes, that is cold. that is the definition of cold comfort. Is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to mention about about her? Oh, I'm always that's, that's always the worst question for me. They, they, at the end of the interview, like, what do we not? Because I don't, as I warned you at the top, I just get going when I talk, and I usually don't know what I said afterwards. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us because I hope that when this episode comes out that more people will at least attempt. As you said, you, you can't just try it once. You have to try it twice in Ivy Compton Burnett book to kind of get into the rhythm. So we should say you read very quickly because they're all dialogue. Yeah, they, they do. Finish in Ivy Compton yes. Burnett way faster than you thought you were going to. I will say that don't – if you do choose to read one, make sure you, you do that. Don't put it aside for a week or so because when you come back, you can't oh, find where characters. you were. Like, right, right. Who's Miss Burtonshaw? Well, because when you say it's all dialogue, it's it's very, it's like Hemingway. It's like not dialogue with Dulcia said, Nance said. It's just straight quotes nope. most of the time. So you have to really place yourself, and you do do a lot of tracing back. But once you get into the rhythm of it, it really is like being in a, in, in a club. You, know? it's like you get mm-hmm. to be in a, in a fraternity of some kind. You know? Well, thank you for joining our fraternity. We oh, the pleasure it. was really fun. Thank you so a real honor to be here. I mean, I could still go on for about five more hours, but I think we've done her justice. Sure. I was really happy to read my first Ivy. That was a long time coming. It was. It's something that we've discussed since we met about when I need to read my first Ivy and what my first Ivy should be. Mm. I'm curious, what which one do you think I should go to after this one? I think you should change gears a little bit and switch away from the predominantly family set ones mm-hmm. uh, because there's a few that are set in the world of a school and they often involve like family members as part sure. of that so there's one that i love a lot called more women than men mm-hmm. uh, which more specifically narrows in on gender as the target okay of her clever repartee that's a fun one and it's it's one of the most openly gay books that she wrote yes wildly so it's so good i we didn't really mention directly how quotable her books are oh yeah but i think that she rivals oscar wilde for a one-liner 
a like serious kicker that things that I just won't forget. I, I kept repeating like phrases and sentences to you that people would say as I read because I, I just kept chuckling and going like, dang. Yeah, yeah. There's one thrown in there every few pages. It's like the most vicious tweet that ever existed. A hundred percent. Saying how quotable it is, I mean, it goes back to John was reading A House in Its Head and stumbled across a great quote and thought, going to put that in my book. Yeah. One of them is uh, a leopard does not change its spots or change his feeling that spots are rather a credit. <laughs> I like that one. One of my favorites, though, is, and I think about this when I'm like writing an email, it is so subtle to write things that have no meaning. <laughs> I had toyed for a while with the idea of that being, you know, sometimes people have like an inspirational quote after their name and their signature with that being my, my inspirational quote <laughs> when I'm like, hope this email finds you well. Every email you send, it's pasted onto it. I actually might do that. I have nothing to lose at this point. <laughs> yeah, this was just really cool. I have to say, I, I for years have just been typing Ivy Compton Burnett's name directly into different podcast apps. In the hopes that that somebody, the backlisted guys or whoever, would do an episode on her. I don't believe that has ever transpired. I think this may be the first podcast about her. Just like hard to be the first at podcasting. We're pioneers. We're pioneers. The fact that we got John Darniel to be our guest on it is just completely wild. So that's awesome. It's always great to find a fellow Ivy fan. So we have to thank our listeners now and always for listening to the show. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Join us next week for The Moon and the Bonfires by Cesar Pavese. And until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Unburied Books. You can also send us a Gmail at Unburied Books as well. We'd love to hear from you. And if you send us a Gmail, we will respond. We'll send you our favorite Ivy quote of the moment. Sure. I'd love that. Bye. Bye. Bye.